Good morning, church. My name is Brennan Schmidt, and I am our college and adult pastor here. And so anytime they give me the mic, I am going to shamelessly plug Oasis, the ministry that I help lead and love. So tonight in the great room, which is right across the building, we are going to have our second summer oasis of the year. So if you are a college student and young adult, tonight at 8 p.m., this is my invitation to you. Besides that plug, we're going to dive in. But first, let me show you this video. The world needs you to stop being boring. Yes. Boring is easy. Everybody can be boring. But you're good at that. Life is not a game, people. Life isn't a cereal either. Well, it is a cereal. And if life is a game, are we on the same team? I mean, really, right? I'm on your team, be on my team. This is life, people. You got air coming through your nose. You got heartbeat. That means it's time to do something. A poem. Two roads diverged in the woods, and I took the road less traveled. And it hurt, man! Really bad. Rocks, thorns, and glass. The pirates broke. But well, love that we're in work too paths. I won't be in the one that leads to awesome. It's like that dude Journey said, don't stop believing. Unless your dream is stupid. Then you should be a better dreamer. I think that's how it goes. That video went viral in 2013, so maybe you've seen it. But the kid on the screen, his name is Robbie Novak. And as it went viral, it, it had this irony to it that really it's kind of good advice that we should live awesome lives, that we should stop being boring, get out there, be more, do more. But the irony is it comes from an eight-year-old, that I don't know if you know any eight-year-olds, but they can be wild and crazy. And he nicknames himself Kid President, because as he made this video, he kind of thought he was leading the people. But we know an eight-year-old leading a big group of people, much less a nation, would be ridiculous. Until we open up the Old Testament, and we find this guy named King Josiah, who at the age of eight is handed the keys to the kingdom of Judah. Unbelievable, crazy, and that's who we're going to learn from today. Because in his amazing life and in his incredible leadership, he has something to teach us. That actually this morning, we're going to focus on one specific piece of his life. And it's this masterclass lesson he's going to give us in repentance. Now, I know Serenity talked about it, but that word can be kind of, it can kind of get under our skin a little bit. It can make us feel a little uncomfortable. But I just want to give you a simple definition kind of get some of the, the churchy language out of it. But repentance is simply to turn or to change. That as you open your Old Testament, you're going to find that the original language of it was Hebrew. And so the word for repentance when it was talked about was shuv. And shuv is said over 300 times throughout the Old Testament by prophets who are coming to the wayward nation of Israel. And they're begging them to turn back to God, to forego their evil ways and to return to their heavenly father. Now, as you flip over to the New Testament, the language changes from Hebrew to Greek. And so in the original language, when they talked about repentance in the New Testament, it was maneo. And maneo has this slightly different meaning, that rather than turning the whole nation in the Old Testament, it has a more personal idea. That maneo means more to change. And through the New Testament, the authors speak to the direct individual person, trying to get them to change their heart, their mind, their soul, back to follow God. And so that's how we get this definition, that as we talk about repentance today, it will all be about turning and changing. And King Josiah gives us an amazing example of repentance by returning the nation to God and by personally changing for God. And you and I, we need this example. We desperately need it. 
that this repentance word can't just seem, can't just become a cool Hebrew or Greek knowledge fact we have. Rather, it needs to become part of our everyday language, that you and I become fluent in the language and the action of repentance. Because unfortunately, we are a sinful people. I could flip to Genesis. I could open Genesis 3. I could read you the fall account. We could talk about Adam and Eve. But rather than do that, I just want to succinctly tell you what Paul tells you. In Romans, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Serenity told you something similar in Isaiah. The prophet there says, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips among a nation of unclean lips. And that's where we find ourselves in the story. Amongst sinful people, and we find ourselves today in a reality as sinful people. That I could get silly with it, and we could talk about how this morning, unless you had a really, 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 really good morning, you've probably fallen short of the glory of God. Right? You got up, and you had great intentions to make it to church, but then one of those little kiddos put their shoes on backwards and their shirt inside out and they spilled everywhere. And all of a sudden you love them so much, but you burst. <laughs> it just came out of you. You don't know where it, came from, where it came from, but you were frustrated and angry. And then you looked over and your spouse wasn't helping and you were frustrated and angry. And then maybe for some of us, you were trying to get roommates to come and you were encouraging them and trying to get them in the car. You actually were going to pay them lunch to just come and, and to come to church and they wouldn't come again and you talked bad about them, and you thought bad about them, and all of a sudden you find yourself falling short of the glory of God. Maybe you did really good at home, and then you came into the parking lot this morning, and you were driving down, and you spotted the front of the row. Oh, the Lord is so good. You spotted that front row spot, and you were like, I am highly favored. I'm going to pull into this. It's the best spot I've ever got. And you saw the person who had parked too far over the yellow line, and blocked your parking spot. And right there, you almost lost your salvation, but yet you still stumbled into church. Like we understand, like as I poke at these things, some of them are silly. But we also can get kind of serious here. As some of us in the room this morning are struggling with a pornography addiction that we just can't break. Some of us in the room this morning Greed has so consumed our lives that the idea of generosity feels more like a distant fairy tale. Some of us in the room this morning, anger, bitterness, comparison, jealousy, so clouds our every day that the fruit of the Spirit promised to us of love, joy, and peace is unattainable. And I don't say any of that to shame, but rather for us to see that before we can go anywhere today, anywhere God wants to take us in his word, we must be a people who see the sin reality we struggle with. Because it's from that place of recognition that repentance can actually start. And I'm already getting ahead of myself, but we need to realize the power in repentance. And as we do so, I want us to flip back into the Old Testament, and we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 34. But before I can even read that, we need to do a Bible history lesson. That for some of you, you might know this, and so it's recap, but for others, I, I really needed this lesson. So check this out. In Genesis, not with Adam and Eve, but rather with Abram, we have this promise that God makes to him, that from his descendants will become a nation of God's people. That nation will be called Israel. But Abram becomes Abraham, and he does have those descendants. We call it the patriarch. And these fatherly figures continue to lead the people of God, and they become a big nation. But the problem was, 
They often didn't live the way God called them to live. Instead, they looked at all the nations around them and they envied them. They wanted what they had. They wanted their worship. They wanted their culture. They wanted their kings. And so the nation of Israel comes to God and begs him to give them a king. But they were never meant to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be their leader. They were supposed to look to God for guidance, but they wanted a figure. And so begrudgingly, God gave them a figure. And he gave them Saul. And Saul gets it wrong pretty quickly. And so God replaces him with David. And maybe you've heard of David. He's the most famous of all the kings on the list. But as David comes and he does his kingship, he's described as a man after God's own heart. He has some errors. But because of his faithfulness, God makes a promise to him. He says to David that there will always be someone from your lineage to sit on the throne. And we see that in Solomon. This king comes up who is David's son and he reigns on the throne. But for half of his life, he does great. He builds the temple, he has wisdom, he he has power. But for the second half of his life, it all goes haywire. That that same Solomon started to pursue power and money and wealth and women and it led him astray. And so God pronounced on him a punishment that the nation that was one, one unified people from Abraham, the covenant promise of God would now become two. And you see that right here. We have Israel and Judah. Israel is that Northern kingdom. And I wish I would have had this chart. Nate Popke's our graphic intern made this for me. I wish I had this years ago, but up here you have Israel as the Northern kingdom and their capital city will soon to be Samaria. But in the South you have Judah And their capital city is Jerusalem. And that lineage of David follows through the people of Judah. That God's promise is fulfilled to him, especially in Jesus. And as we look at that crazy list of names, most of which I would not even attempt to pronounce, we see on the right side, all of them are green. That's because in Israel, they went O for about 20 in good kings. Not once did they get it right. Not one time did someone step up and faithfully follow after God. Not once in the northern kingdom. But in the southern kingdom, like David, you can see there's some yellow names in there. And these are the people, it's about eight of 20 kings that faithfully followed the Lord and were blessed because of it. Ultimately, both of these nations, because of their waywardness, because of their wickedness, they will be captured and sent into exile by the two nations at the bottom, Babylon and Assyria. But before that happens, we have to talk about Josiah because Josiah is one of the last kings of Judah and he is the last good king before exile. You can find his life in 2 Kings, but we're actually gonna read it in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse one, reading through verse three. Here it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. In these first three verses, we are already seeing that Josiah was a good king, that he got a lot right, and he wanted to follow God. By the age of 16, just eight years after he took over, he's faithfully and fervently seeking the Lord. By the age of 20, he's already starting to purge the nation of some of the evil that has plagued it forever. And in this struggle, he's starting to recognize that there's something more. That while he's a good king, what will happen next will make him a great king. Verse 8. 
In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land of the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord. Now the temple is this thing we just have to hit, a, hit for a quick second because it's so drastically different than anything we experience. That today, as followers of God, his spirit dwells among his people. That yes, we sit in a church building, but we are the church. The people of God, filled with his spirit, are the church. He dwells among his people. Not at this time. At this time, God's presence physically dwelt in the temple. And that made the temple so important to them. It's where they worshiped, their life centered on it. And for years, through bad king after bad king after bad king, it had been desecrated. That Josiah's father and his grandfather were two of those wicked kings. And following Hezekiah, the last faithful king, there's about a 60 to 70 year slide into what I'll call a cesspool of evil. Because Josiah's grandfather, his name was Manasseh, King Manasseh. He was bad, like bad, 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 like the worst of all kings. Because all the bad kings did idol worship. They all worshiped false gods. They all did that kind of stuff. But Manasseh took those idols and those false altars and he brought them into the temple of the Lord. That the place where God is supposed to dwell had become unclean by idol worship. Not only that, he was one of those kings that looked at the surrounding nations and really liked some of the things they were doing. He got excited about it. Like, I could see it when he could, he could see what they were doing and he wanted to implement it in their practice. And one of those things was child sacrifice. That the other nations, as they worshiped their false gods, would take their young and they would slaughter them in order to please these false gods. And so not only is the temple of the Lord filled with false worship, but the blood of God's people is spilling over the temple. And this is the nation that Josiah has inherited. And so he goes about cleaning it up. And in a seemingly simple act of repairing the temple, something incredible happened. God helps Josiah find the book of the law. Verse 14 while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Now it's highly debated on exactly what this book was that they found. Actually, it would have been more of a scroll, but most scholars would agree it was some version of the book of Deuteronomy. That if you were to flip, flip back a couple chapters in your Old Testament, you will find Deuteronomy. And while I'm not going to promise you it's the most exciting of reads, it is a beautiful powerful portion of text. It taught the people how to interact through the law. And the law was given to, by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the law provided guidelines for the nation of Israel on how to interact with God, how to interact with each other, and how to interact with other nations. That this became their life book. The law was how they were supposed to live. This is what it meant to live righteously, was to follow the law but we talked about it. They had all of these wicked kings mix, mixed in. And so as the wicked kings would inherit the law, it would be handed down to them. They slowly and slowly and slowly pushed it farther to the peripheral until one day it got lost in the proverbial junk drawer. You guys have that at your house? The one drawer when it goes in there is never coming back. Well, the temple seemingly had that. Then it got pushed in there and it got covered up and it got discarded and it got forgotten. So Josiah is a good king. He is doing his best to follow the Lord. He is purging the nation of all evil, but he doesn't even know really what he's doing. And he becomes a great king when he now has the book of the Lord. Verse 19. 
When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robe. He gave the orders to Hilkiah, Hikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. He said, go and inquire for the Lord, of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because of those who have gone before us and they have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Now the nation functioned a little bit different than we do as people. That typically when we sin, we take responsibility for our own actions. Parents, sometimes you have to take responsibility for the little actions that you also created, but for the most part, you're only responsible for your own actions. But this is how it worked in this time. That King Josiah is a good king, but he as king is responsible for the whole nation. And so while he's a good king, the nation is still radically evil. And because of that, he sends this group of elite men to go find this female prophet named Holda. And in that encounter, she speaks to them on behalf of God, what they're supposed to do. Here's what she says. First, she pronounces the consequences for the nation. In verse 24, it says, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Then she speaks specifically to Josiah, verse 26. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke about this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. Now I know sometimes we can get lost in the, the biblical language. So let me just really simply summarize what just happened. This female prophet spoke on behalf of God and said the nation of Israel they are going to perish because of their wickedness. That the, all of God's people are going to be cast into exile. And we see that happen, remember, at Babylon and Assyria. But she puts this caveat on it, that because of the repentance of King Josiah, it won't happen during his lifetime. Upon hearing this, Josiah called all the people together. And in verse 31, he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. To follow the Lord faithfully and to keep his commands, his statutes and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. To the people of Jerusalem, he did this in accordance with the covenant of the law, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all of the detestable idols from all of the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And so we have this story of a king who starts as an eight-year-old, and then by the time he's 20, and then 24, He's leading the nation back in repentance. And God sees that and relents in his anger. And because of that repentance, I think we need to take a closer look. So there are two parts this morning that we are going to chat about for Josiah's repentance. The first part, it's so key, is the conviction Josiah feels. It's his conviction. Earlier I read this list of like sins, I guess we could say. And as I read it, I hope you didn't sit back and think, oh man, this was a delightful day to come to church. I feel great, you know, just butterflies hearing all about pornography and greed. And I hope that's not what you felt. Most of us, maybe we, I didn't hit you in the list, but you probably felt some kind of what the world would call guilt. But if it comes from the Lord, 
If it's good for you and it's healthy, we need to call it conviction. It's that feeling we have deep in our gut, something inside of us saying, this is not right. Conviction is our heart's response of humility to disobedience. I want to say that again. Conviction is our heart's response of humility to disobedience. And that comes straight from 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27. Again, the prophet said, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard that he spoke about this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your robes and you wept in in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. This is not yet entire repentance. Remember, I'm gonna come back to the, the definition. It's to turn or to change. But rather this conviction is the start of that process. It's when Josiah's heart was responsive. And too often, we miss this piece of conviction. And if we miss this piece of conviction, I don't think we get to repent. That our heart needs to be captured by the ways of God. That we typically are trained in this way, and I don't really blame us, it's just kind of the way the world works, where we're expected to hear and to do. That we're taught intellectually what is right and wrong and expected to act out with our hands in action those right laws. Like, let's just go there. There, There's laws in our nation. And those laws, you maybe haven't read them, but you've heard them. And because of that, as you hear them, they're supposed to be locked into your brain and you're supposed to follow through in action with those. Like, I don't probably have to tell all of you that you shouldn't speed down 6th Street. You're going to get a ticket. There is a law against speeding down 6th Street. We know that and we're expected to follow that. But very rarely do we hit this middle ground where we take the time to explain the rules that are in place. And if we will take that time to teach, true and lasting obedience can happen. Because true and lasting obedience involves more than just the head and the hands. It's more than just intellect and action. True and lasting obedience captures the heart. Just this last week, I was talking with a a fellow pastor, and he was telling me about this interaction his son had in their cul-de-sac, that their kids are required to wear their helmet when they ride their bike. And so they have told him, they have taught him, and he does this. He he listens and and he faithfully follows their rule. But one time this last week, the cul-de-sac kids, the cool kids, pulled up on him not wearing helmets. And instantly, you know how this goes. He has his rule, but they've got their set of beliefs and they clashed. Like they were telling him how cool it is to not wear your helmet. They were telling him exactly why he shouldn't wear his helmet, why he doesn't need to listen to his parents. And it's in that moment we feel the tension I'm talking about today. That he knew in his head that his parents told him. And he did with his hands what he was supposed to do. But when opposition comes up against the things we believe, is our heart captured by it? Did he truly believe that wearing his helmet on his bike was the right thing to do? We sit in rooms like this, hear sermons, read the scripture, and we get God's law. We get how he's supposed to call us to live. We hear these things, they get into our minds, and we're expected to do them with our action. But I want to ask you, church, does God's law deeply abide in your heart? Do you truly, honestly, and authentically believe God's way is best? because there's a culture out there that is going to come against you in opposition every single day. And when they do, your head and your hands are not gonna cut it. It needs to penetrate your heart. You need to be captivated by the words of God. We see this in Josiah's conviction. He hears the word of the Lord and he tears his clothes. He weeps 
This is an emotional and a visceral, visceral reaction from Josiah. It's a public and powerful display of his grief that his heart actually broke in emotion when he heard what God had called them to do and he saw the way they were living. His heart was responsive. Not only that, Josiah's conviction was filled with humility. And I want to tell you, humility recognizes God and God's way is greater than us in our way. There's a lot of different definitions for humility out there, some really, really good ones. But this one I love, that humility recognizes God in God's way as greater than us in our way. And unfortunately, this is another piece we can miss. That in our pride and our arrogance, we can typically fail to submit to God in God's way. That we think our own way is better. How easy would it have been for Josiah to receive the book of the law and to slowly shove it back into the room that it came from? It actually had happened in, in the past. That kings had received the word, of the, God, the word of the Lord and pushed it off to the side, declaring that their way and their leadership was better. And it will happen again in the future. In Jeremiah 36, the prophet Jeremiah will bring this same word of the Lord to the then king at the time, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is Josiah's son. And you would think, oh man, he's seen the example of his father. He's going to repent. He's going to receive the word of the Lord. But instead he rips it up and he burns it. Just a generation later that he did not have the humility to sit under the word of the Lord and to submit himself to that. We live in a culture where this happens all the time. I could go example after example, but what if for a second this morning, we sat back and we thought, maybe God, the creator of heaven and earth, maybe God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, maybe God, the eternal, loving, heavenly father we have, maybe God, knows better than we do. What would that type of humility do to our repentance and our conviction? What would that do to us as a people if we would follow him in this way? I told you repentance starts in conviction, but it doesn't end there. The second thing we're going to focus on is action. That repentance cannot just be a, a feeling or a thought. We get that all the time. People feel and, and think guilty things, and then they do nothing about it. That's just part of life sometimes. But repentance, following faithfully after Jesus, doesn't let that be the case. Repentance takes the conviction we feel and puts it into action. And Josiah does this. And Josiah's change is uniquely complete. I want to read you a verse from 2 Kings 23. It says, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. Unique. And he did this with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength in accordance with all of the law of Moses. Complete. His change was uniquely complete. That it wasn't he felt the conviction and he dropped a, tithe, a, a 20 in the tithe bucket. It wasn't he felt the conviction of selfishness and so he showed up at the kid's school to volunteer for an hour. It wasn't he felt the conviction and so he did one small task. It's no, he felt the conviction and his whole life changed because of it. That his repentance was unique and it was totally incomplete. That it was not a selective process for Josiah. And as I read you that verse, I hope that you recognize some, some similarities to something we've heard. That if you were to flip over into the New Testament, Matthew twenty two thirty seven says this. It says, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That what Josiah practiced, Jesus gave us as the greatest of all commandments. And this is powerful. 
that the nation of Israel we've talked is for 60 to 70 years worshiping false gods in the presence of God, slaughtering their precious children, letting them bleed out to try to attain from a false god what only the one true God, Yahweh, could give them. This is the state of the nation. And in repentance, in just over about a year, Josiah rid the whole nation of all idol worship. That repentance, through God, he uses repentance to transform people and places. He uses faith in Jesus that prompts us in conviction, that turns our hearts and lets us change to transform people and places. And this is where I want us to look at our lives. That in the places where we've lost hope, I think repentance and faith in Jesus can bring hope back. In your workplace where you never think it's going to get better. In your family and your extended family where it's always felt toxic, we believe that God can transform that. In all of the places that we find ourselves sent by God on mission to do God's work, can we have hope again that God can do a transformative work there? And by the power of repentance, we can be the examples to people there. Not only that, I get to work with college students, um, and some of the beauty of that is every once in a while, uh, we have this unbelievable thing happen. Where college students typically move to Brookings, they don't all live in Brookings, but they move here, and they'll be a part of Oasis or a part of one of the campus ministries, and there's this thing that happens that they come, and then when they go home for breaks or summer or a weekend, we'll have reactions where parents are confused what happened to their kids. (laughs) They came here one way, and they left because of their faith in Jesus and because of the power of repentance, turning away from their wickedness, and they step back into their families as people of repentance with faith in Jesus. And this doesn't just happen to have, have to happen among college students. That what if we as people became the models in our workplaces and our families, that repentance in Jesus, that turning to him, that giving him our whole life, our whole heart, our whole soul, following all of his laws, what would that do to the places we find ourselves? It would radically transform everything it means to follow Jesus. It would change the culture we live in. We need to look with hope for the transformation God wants to bring. And so your application today is simply repent. And as I say that, I I twinge at the fact that it sounds fire and brimstone, hell pressure preaching. But I don't say it like that. Instead, I say it with the same heart that the author of 2 Peter did. Because in chapter 3, verse 9, He says, God is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Now here's where Aaron would tag in the y'all because he likes his Southern accent. But I want to keep it you. God is patient with you. Intrinsically feel that God is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish but everybody to come to repentance. This is the Father's heart. Now, as I conclude, I think we're starting to recognize that we might have a, we might have hard times ahead of us for the church, that we're living in an increasingly secular country, in an increasingly worldly culture, and the church has been pushed to the fringes and will continue to be pushed to the fringes. 
It's just part of the reality of the world that God has, has placed us in. He's called us to be his remnant. But we also must recognize that on the outskirts there, that's where God does some of his best work. That across history, there has been these moments where the church has been at the fringes. We no longer have a voice in the culture, in, in the climate that we live in. And in those places, this word gets thrown around. It's called revival. And revival is unbelievable. It's where God's people turn back to him with fervent hearts, with fire in their bones. They want so badly to please the Father. That's revival. Charles Finney is a leader who led a revival. He led the second great awakening in America. He was probably at the cutting edge of one of God's greatest works. And he said this. This is how he summed up what takes a revival. He says, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. What if we would be those people? That's how he simply summed up everything he saw God do. Conviction, repentance, obedience. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, thank you um, this morning for the chance to open up your word. Um, Thank you for the example of King Josiah and just from the earliest of ages, his willingness to live in a faithful way and turn an entire people back. And so with that spirit, God, with that idea in mind, would you captivate our hearts? Would you pour just conviction on this room? Even though we don't want that, we, we like comfort, God. Would you speak to each and every one of our individual lives, giving us the conviction that you want for us? That whether there's sin in our lives or God, maybe it's just that we've never turned to you. And in that place, God, I pray just repentance. I pray that action would follow our conviction. That maybe today, this morning, is the opportunity that we have to turn and to follow you for once and for all, to give our whole life to you and to live in your ways because that's what's best. It's powerful. It's transformative. God, I pray that over our our people. But otherwise, God, if there's just sin in our lives, places we've struggled, places we've been unwilling to give you, would you continue to speak? Would you be patient with us, slow, because you want us to flourish? And so this morning, as a congregation, we repent before you. We turn back to you, God. We ask that your spirit would lead us to love those around us when we haven't. To be the people you've called us to be when we haven't. And as we repent back to you, God, we recognize your forgiveness in Christ. Your empowerment by the spirit and the love that you still have for us. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.